Welcome to Needful King, a podcast dedicated to news, discussion, and analysis of Stephen King novels and adaptations. You can follow our podcast on Twitter at Needful King, and check us out on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Needful King. Vanessa Cole, Stephen King superfan, constant reader, and artist. You can find me on Twitter at VK Cole Artist and on Facebook and Instagram at VK Cole Art. And I'm your other host, Samantha, also a superfan and constant reader. I like to think I have the heart of a gunslinger and the mouth of Richie Tozier. And you can find me on Twitter at the Sansa Snark. Okay, we're back. We're back. Yes. <laughs> Yay. It's been, a, it's been a long time coming. Yeah, <laughs> back. Yeah, a little, little bit of a hiatus, but you know, yes. life happens. And, uh, but you know, October is a perfect month to kind of, kind of jump back in. So hi, Vanessa. It is. Yeah. It's just a time for Halloween. Hello. Yeah. Exciting. Um, so if you're joining us for the first time here on Needful King, what we usually do is we start with any interesting patron question or comments, and then we cover news and updates related to Stephen King, you know, a new excerpt from a book or filming, a piece of news or something like that. Um, before we jump into our main discussion, which today is going to be a very exciting one. Um, so let's see what's happening in the world of King, shall we? Uh, Vanessa, do you want to take the first story? Sure. So this comes from The Hollywood Reporter, and uh, this has actually been out for uh, a few weeks, but um, it's pretty exciting. They're doing an adaptation of Mr. Harrigan's phone, and if you're not familiar, it's a novella from uh, If It Bleeds, which I believe it came out uh, early last year. Um, yeah. In 2020, so um, it's it's a pretty good story. I, I really enjoyed all of them in there. But um, so they have veteran actor Donald Sutherland has been cast, and Jaden Martell is also going to be part of this adaptation. Um, it's being produced by Jason Blum's Blumhouse and Ryan Murphy. So that's a pretty good team there to get this uh, produced, and uh, mm-hmm. hopefully it'll be a good one. Um, it's going to be on Netflix, and they are beginning production this month. It doesn't say when it'll be coming out. Um, but yeah, I'm one looking forward to it. I think those are the only actors that they have announced that have been cast as part of this adaptation. So we'll mm-hmm. see. Um, so in case you don't know who Jaden Martell is, he actually played Bill Denbrough in uh, the most recent adaptation of it. So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, looking forward to this one. Yeah, I me too. I you know very much trust the team behind it. But I was just thinking, it's funny that I don't. Jade Martell's already been in one Stephen King movie, so it's Finn Wolfhard, yeah. and now I think I want to say one of the two of them has also been in another Stephen King property. So it's like you know, once you once you do it once, I guess you're you're marked for your <laughs> right. <career. laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, very cool. So I'll go ahead and take our next one, and this is uh, a tweet from Richard Chismar, um, and this is announcing it was the cover art for his newest novel that he has written with Stephen King, uh, Gwendy's Final Task. And I'm actually not, I'm not familiar with this, with what this is. Um, but the, the cool thing about, and I guess the point of the tweet was just showing the cover art, which is really, really interesting because you can see the dark tower in the background. There's like a field of roses, you know, like it's uh, depicted there. So it's, it's definitely very stunning artwork. But yeah, I'm not, I'm not familiar with, with this trilogy they've written together. Yeah. So it started with Gwendy's button box and um, it, it's really pretty interesting. I, 
I really like the first story. The second one, Wendy's uh, Magic Feather, which Richard did on his own, which was fine. It just, you could tell, didn't really have mm-hmm. Stephen King's hand in it. it. So I just didn't enjoy it as much. But it, the basic premise is like she gets this box that has all these different buttons that do different things. Um, and there's like, could be a really bad thing. It could be a really good thing. And like, she has mm-hmm. to be super careful and it's kind of addictive and I don't want to get too like far into it, but um, it was, it was a neat premise for a story and it kind of continues along a little bit in the second one. So I'm not really sure what the tie-in, it looks like there's going to be a Dark Tower tie-in with this yeah. work that they've got going on. Um, you would think. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting. I'm trying, and then it's been a while since I read the stories too. So maybe yeah. there were some hints along the way that I just don't recall at the time, but yeah. um, I'm very, very much looking forward to this, this last yeah. installment, if it is going to have some significant tie into the Dark Tower series. Yeah, that would be interesting. It seems like, I mean, the Dark Tower, you know, we've talked about it before that it's one of those uh, it's his series that kind of like has tendrils and so many other things, you know, mm-hmm. characters appearing in that and other ones and everything, you know, but yeah, you can, I, I, and again, if nothing else, just check out the tweet for the, uh, for the really cool cover art because it's pretty neat. So yeah, it's beautiful, beautiful art. Uh, so I will take this next one and this is another tweet. Um, and this is, this came out, uh, October 2nd, so if you wanted to kind of scroll back and search for it, but it's uh, from KingCast19 on Twitter, and they just post a ton of photos from the Salem's Lot set um, as they're filming for that reboot, or remake, remake, I guess you would say, um, yeah. but it's really, it looks really good, um, very 1970s aesthetic, so uh, apparently they got them from Facebook, I guess locals that live in the area were taking photos. Um, mm-hmm. But some some interesting uh, names here. Uh, I did uh, I did particularly like the uh, flag certified public accountant sign. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Nice little Easter egg. So uh, Barlow and Stranger fighting furnishings. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, yep. just some Merrill's photo. So yep. just some neat little Easter eggs if you wanted to kind of scroll through those photos. But uh, yeah. I, I think the production values look great as far as the set goes. So, you know, we'll see how the movie itself turns out, but I'm excited for that one. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited too. The, it does look really cool. Uh, again, the 70s aesthetic, like you mentioned. Um, and I'm glad that they are, you know, how sometimes like they'll change, you know, the years in which a story is set. You know, they did it with most recent mm-hmm. adaptation of it, you know. Yeah. Um, but it's just, I've always, I, I, I don't know. I, I just, I really dig this aesthetic and, um, I like that part of Jerusalem's Lot stories. It's such an old uh, Salem's Lot, the novel. It's a really old novel of his. So I'm kind of, I'm glad they're keeping, keeping that going with it. So yeah, same here. All right, I'll take our last one. This uh, also comes to us from The Hollywood Reporter. And this was, when was this published? Uh, October 6th. So, you know, it's been out, news has been out for a couple of weeks, but uh, Netflix has greenlit The Fall of the House of Usher based on, of course, Edgar Allan Poe's 1839 short story about an isolated country manor full of secrets, death, and madness. Vanessa, who do you think they're attached, is attached to? <laughs> I wonder, Netflix, horror, ah, adaptation, mm. maybe Mike Flanagan. Yeah, you are correct. Mike Flanagan uh, is set to take on the famous Poe story. Um, it's a limited series like Bly Manor and Midnight Mass, which we're going to talk about today in Haunted Hill House, but I mean, I, I just, 
I have no words at how happy it makes me that like some of this like, you know, seminal horror uh, stories have been getting such an amazing treatment by mm-hmm. Mike Flanagan. I mean, it, it's just, I love it. Yeah, and I love it. He kind of he puts his own little spin on things, um, yeah. but still kind of stays true to the themes of, of the original works, and giving him a nice little update. And of course, bringing in those Stephen King elements that we all love so much, uh, which is why we're talking about another Mike Flanagan work today. Even though it doesn't really have ties to Stephen King, you just you see his influence all over it. So it uh, might yeah. as well, yeah, yeah, it might yeah. as well. Anything that Mike Flanagan does at this point, you might as well say it has some kind of relation to Stephen King. So yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But as this, so Midnight Mass is our main topic of discussion today. Yeah. Um, just fairly recently came out on Netflix. That's a seven episode limited series, and um, I don't know if you've seen Hill House and if you've seen Blind Manor. I would say that this one falls kind of in between those two for me. Hill House just is hard to oh, top. It was just yeah. so amazing, emotional. It packed such a punch. And mm-hmm. uh, I loved Blind Manor as well. Just it didn't quite have the same resonance for me as Hill House. But this one I thought was a nice kind of in-between story where I think it has a little bit more horror elements to it than maybe Hill House. Although, I mean, there's plenty of, of scary moments in that yeah. um, series as well, but I, that was more, I felt more like thematic, more focused mm-hmm. on this family dynamic. And um, so there was a little bit more horror to this, this newest uh, iteration of a Mike Flanagan work. But um, yeah. yeah, it's exciting. What did, what did you think about it, Sam? I, so first two things before we get started if you are listening to this episode listening to this podcast for the first time and you're like well yeah this isn't about Stephen King so what the (laughs) f but I just we are in addition to a Stephen King podcast we are absolutely a Mike Flanagan Stan podcast (laughs) Mike Stanagan I don't know yeah (laughs) (laughs) um so it because just watching anything that he does, you know, and you kind of touched on this, it has so much of that feel of Stephen King. And Mike Flanagan has said in interviews and stuff that it's, he's such a huge inspiration for a lot of his stuff. Um, It was, and this is no different. This, since we just mentioned uh, Salem's Lot recently had major Salem's Lot vibes for me. Like, and that is a great story because as you mentioned, um, you know, Bly Manor and Hill House are both very scary and there are supernatural elements and stuff there but I mean you could even make the argument especially with Hill House like you said it was very it was thematic so Mm -hmm. some of the stuff I'm not saying it's not that it was like in their head but it was a like there's an actual like physical being creature that is hunting people down on Crockett Island Mm -hmm. in Midnight Mass yes and that does kind of change the game a little bit but because Mike Flanagan is great at what he does it's no different than Hill House and Bly Manor in the sense that like the characters are so richly layered and the story is just, it's so complex. And like, if you look at this show on its face, I mean, and it is called Midnight Mass. It's about a bunch of people who get too wrapped up in, in Jesus. And that's not really, you know, it's so much more than that. Like yeah. it's commentary on religion itself. And like, and I, I think mainly the, the main reason is the things that we do or say or believe in to kind of justify faith and yes. do the ends always justify the means you know yeah. I, I I just I thought it was fantastic it was so well done the last mm-hmm. two episodes especially episode six and seven are just so raw and emotional uh, toward the end 
Mm -hmm. And I, and I say this with all, with all due respect to Hamish Linklater, I don't believe in like sexualizing people, but every time we mention Hamish Linklater in this discussion, I'm going to make a little noise because <laughs> it was father through it. I was the Monsignor through it. I was delivering those sermons. Hmm. Yeah. Made me want to go back to church. <laughs> Anyway. <laughs> well, before we get too far in this, I, I just want to make sure that everyone knows that's listening. We are going to spoil the hell out of this. So oh, yes, I really yeah, hope you is, watched it already. Yeah, <laughs> this is not spoiler free. <laughs> no. Uh, yeah. But no, I 100% agree with everything you just said. And one of the things that I really liked about this in particular, and, and really I think anything Mike Flanagan does, is that he puts forth kind of his view on things without being like ramming it down your throat. So he does leave space for you to kind of form your own interpretation of what he's trying to say. Um, so like I could certainly look at this as an indictment of religion altogether. Like it's just horrible, bad, like there's, you shouldn't believe in any kind of higher power. This it's a bunch of BS yep. and it's, it's going to lead you down crazy. this horrible path. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But you could also look at it as an indictment of organized religion, especially corruption in religious institutions, which can, uh, there are plenty of spiritual religious people that will point out that yes, there's a lot of bad things happening and, you know, undue influence by certain people can definitely lead you down a wrong path, even if you are a believer. And I, I think you can really take that from watching this as well. Cause um, I don't, like I said, I don't necessarily think it's an indictment of, of spirituality or, or being a religious person, but mm -hmm. getting involved in an, an institution and being so, I mean, to me, it's even like Jesus indicting the Pharisees and the leadership of um, Israel at the time. Like you're so wrapped up in all of the trappings of religion that you forgot what it's actually supposed to be about. And that's so much <laughs> it describes what's happening in this, like especially yeah. with with Bev, this you know, she's yeah. basically like a cult leader, um, mm -hmm. just so wrapped up in her influence over this town because of her position in the church and her influence over Monsignor Pruitt. And then, you know, his younger iteration as it comes, as he comes back to the town um, and, you know, what she does with the money from the settlement and nuzzling kind of uh, the yeah. funds and to, you know, everything's kind of works to her own ends. And she's yeah. totally abusing um, her position with the church. And we all know people like this. Oh, Just a complete yeah. hypocrite that, but does, I mean, I don't even know if she she's she's a tricky one it's like does she actually believe her own bullshit <laughs> or is she just using it's, it to better herself like it's it's hard. really hard to tell with her it is really hard to tell and that's one of the lessons that I think Mike Flanagan wants us to take from this and I'm glad that you mentioned Bev Keen because she is weirdly like my favorite character because she's <laughs> kind of so despicable yeah, she's, um, <laughs> she's, terrible. she's so bad um, but it's I, I love that you mentioned the building, the Monsignor J. Pruitt Center. You know, she convinces mm -hmm. all these people on the island, take the money, da da da. You know, and she, you know, she spearheads it, not really out of the goodness of her heart, but because she wants years from now people to say, oh, you know, it it may be named after Monsignor Pruitt, but she wants people to know that she was the one who was responsible for, you know, collecting the money and being the big, you know, driving force behind this and everything. And it's really funny to me that if, when you look at the three buildings, because they're all the church, the rectory, and the, the rec center, 
are all right there. And the mm -hmm. rec center, because it's the newest one, is like the cleanest and the most up, you know, updated kind of like on the outside. And I didn't yeah. notice, I didn't, I, maybe this is something I just didn't notice until episode seven, but like the outside of the rectory and the church are like pretty grimy. And I yeah. know that they're old <laughs> buildings, but it's just mm -hmm. funny that like Bev absolutely believes, I think she does, she does believe her own height, but she thinks she's better than everyone she thinks god loves her more you know which annie has to point out like you know no he doesn't but it's just it's great because there's a, a visual representation of like she built this big shiny new thing you know and she expects that it's gonna like i don't know get her into heaven it's like mm -hmm. back in the medieval days when people would pay to buy a church so that they could yeah. you know, buy their way into heaven like yeah she's like actually neglecting the actual true spiritual heart of yeah. the church like the actual church itself in favor yep. of this thing that she was responsible for. And one thing I also, as you were talking, kind of made me think about how um, there are a lot of places like small towns where there are, you know, certain families that have been around or have like a lot of influence where they don't really care if the town dies or gets smaller. They don't care about growth. They just care about their position and their influence over the rest of the people in town. And that seems like so much her to me because basically with, um, you find out with this, lawsuit, settlement, whatever, that really caused a lot of economic fallout to, you know, make people have to leave the island. And it's just totally dwindled down to this minuscule population that's left. And Bev, she doesn't care. She got what she wanted out of it. And she's, you know, got all this influence still over the people that are left. And that's, you know, she's this big fish in a small pond and then she mm -hmm. seems to be perfectly happy to be that way. Yeah, absolutely. She, she really is fascinating. And like, I, I don't know if it's, maybe the, it does change like halfway through the telling of the story and that, you know, you think Monsignor Pruitt is like the, the peg on which the whole story pivots, you know, but mm -hmm. it really turns out, I think, to be Bev because mm -hmm. she is like the classic, she's an example of like, she never learns a lesson all the way through to the very end and everybody else around her. I mean, I'm not saying that they do, but the people who are left at the end end up making the right choice. It's yes. not the choice that Bev wants them to make. And speaking of choice, like I have a whole rant prepared on free will versus, <laughs> versus not, but you know, yeah. um, it's just, we'll it's, yes, we'll get there. <laughs> but I, I just love that it kind of, it shows that for Bev because again, she's just singularly awful throughout the whole thing. I will say that, you know, yes, this show can show us or can prove to us that organized religion can be extremely dangerous in the hands of the wrong people. And like you said, sometimes mm -hmm. it's the corruption is there on the inside. The, the wrong people in the wrong hands are on the inside, right? Yep. And that's definitely one thing that it shows us. But I love at the end when Bev is the only one still clinging to this, like, no, we're God's chosen people, blah, 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 whatever. And everybody else is like, you know what? We, we can't follow this. Like, this mm -hmm. is not what God intended, like, da, da, da. So yeah. it is also, it is also a, a way to say like, listen, religion is really terrible for a lot of reasons, or it can be, but it can also be really wonderful because mm -hmm. these people chose the right thing. It wasn't the easy thing because they all knew that right. they were going to sacrifice themselves, but they chose the right thing. Yeah. Because, so. Yeah. One thing I, I wanted to mention as you're talking about that as well, I think Riley, who you know, pretty much gave up on religion altogether and considers himself an atheist, like the perfect embodiment of Jesus, honestly, like he yeah. sacrifices himself so that 
the rest of the island can live. I mean, they, I mean, that was his own entire purpose in the story. And you don't really realize it until you get to the end. Like you don't realize how much of an impact he has on, you know, what, he, what Aaron chooses to do and, and what everyone else chooses to do. And uh, I just, I love that. And I think you can even uh, argue that there was some kind of um, higher power guiding him um, you yeah. know, if, so if you do believe in God, you know, God uses people that are, you know, he loves using people that maybe you wouldn't expect or that aren't these perfect paragons of virtue and morality. And, uh, I think that's wonderful. I, I love the fact that because he has those dreams and I mean, his dreams are basically laying out like, Hey, this, this is your destiny. This is, you're going to do this. You aren't going to have a life past this, but there's something beautiful is going to come out of it. So, um, and it's sad, of course, sad, but beautiful, yeah. but, uh, but I love, I just, I really love that. And it's, oh God, it was, it, that episode was really tough to watch. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah. In episode five and Erin just screaming her head off. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, it's I also watched like, that, I was like, oh my gosh. Yeah. Happened? Uh, you it's know, you expect a, it's just awful, awful. Yeah. Well, the funny thing is, I mean, it, in retrospect, it seems so obvious. Like, of course he went out with her on the boat so that he can't get away from the rising sun. Yeah. But I just- was You so don't know that. <laughs> no, I was so enthralled by what they were talking about with each other mm-hmm. that I was just like, you know, I, but like, yeah. Is he, was, gonna, is he gonna attack her? Like, what's gonna happen? I just have no yeah. idea. And so yeah, it was, it was set up so well. It just, yeah. I thought it was great. Um, but one thing, if you don't mind, I do wanna get back to Bev for a second. Yeah, absolutely. Cause oh, I, I wanted to- about Bev for the whole episode. <laughs> Well, so I did rewatch. Um, so I watched it all the way through once and I rewatched up to episode five, which I'd gotten to the last two again, but um, just ran out of time. But one thing I noticed when I rewatched is, you know, obviously we knew that she poisoned the dog, but I didn't even notice it was actually her dropping the hot dog in front of him. Um, Cause you can see like the skirts and you know, her, yeah. So you yeah. see her walk by and drop the hot dog. Um, so yeah, obviously she should kill the poor dog and I can't think of the dog's name at the moment, but, um, and I hate seeing animals dying. It's terrible. But the other thing is I did not realize that she poisoned Monsignor Pruitt. That's the reason he died. Wait. Yeah. What? (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a theory. It's not proven, but he had the same symptoms. He was throwing up the blood. He was like foaming up the mouth. She had someone... She had someone like tampering with his water supply. Um, and you see her, she's like carrying a can of rat poison in that same episode where he dies and like puts it yeah. back in the closet. And because otherwise I was like, why, why did he die? Is it just like he built up so much of that vampire blood in him that it killed him? That, but yeah, no, Holy I think cow. it's poison. I think that have killed him. I think you're hundred percent right. Not and so if she I, hadn't I, done that, like who knows not if this, it even would have ended up the way it did because maybe he would have just continued to feed them the angel blood and you know, like yeah. miraculous things would have happened, but they wouldn't necessarily have died and become vampires. Yeah. Or at least not all of them. <laughs> so, anyway, I just thought that was really interesting and something I picked on as I rewatch. I was like, wait a minute. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> wow. I did not, I had no idea. I didn't even, I did not pick up on that, but wow. Yeah, no, that absolutely makes sense. Yeah. Um, and I'm trying to figure like motive is it like, because Earlier that same episode, she looked at the photo on the wall, and yeah. so you could tell that she realized. I mean, especially when you're rewatching, at first glance, you don't really what was so fascinating about this picture. But like, as you rewatch, you're like, oh god, she recognizes that's him in the photo. Yeah. So she knows like something's up. So I'm like, did she kill him because she knew that he wasn't going to die? 
and that he would come back or did she suspect she want to test it out or did she just not like the popularity he was gaining over the townspeople and wanted to get rid of him like I think it works either way but yeah I I mean if it were the the first one though where she was doing it intentionally I wouldn't I mean that would make sense absolutely mm-hmm. because you know he didn't since he didn't know that that was happening to him mm-hmm. he just thought that everything you know like you said look, and I thought too, you know, the whole time that he's, there's a couple episodes where he's just like getting sick and everything. I thought it was, you know, again, the, the angel blood or whatever right. was reacting badly. It was killing him, whatever, done mm-hmm. that. And I didn't even, I didn't even think about that. Yeah. But, but nobody else got sick him. though. Uh, everyone was drinking it. No one else got sick but him. Yeah. But, and that had to be, or <clears throat> you would think it makes sense for that to be Beth's motivation because she, mm-hmm. she knows that it can't be like, I guess like so obvious if you want to think about it that way like he needed to believe that that it was like a an organic kind of miracle that he came Mm -hmm. back to life yeah and so well that's really interesting because then that brings up you know a whole other thing you know not only Bevstein is like the epitome of the ends justify the means but you know that also brings up the whole you know everybody including me (laughs) I didn't you know you think that it's like the hand of God is at work here, but it's not. It's mm-hmm. Bev Keen's hand. Yeah, absolutely. That's fascinating. Well, since we're yeah. still talking about Bev Keen, let's talk about, I mean, there's so many, so many interesting things about her, but, you know, the whole the free will thing, because in this, literally in the same episode, I think she says um, something about how she's quote, you know, and she's got a Bible verse for everything. So she's quoting about how like, you know, you can either the wages of sin is death and then the whatever, I don't know the rest of that verse, but she's talking about how she's framing these two choices as free will. Like you can either sin and you can die or you cannot mm-hmm. sin and you can live forever in heaven. And she's saying he's, it's right there. He put free will in the Bible and yeah. Bev was not giving anybody free will after they mm-hmm. were, you know, it's just, I don't know. They're really fascinating. Yeah. Great. And one other thing that I noticed that I really loved that at the end. So remember when um, Sarah was talking to Sheriff Hassan and he was saying, you know, dignity. My wife always told me, you know, live your life with dignity. So mm-hmm. here we are at the, the sun is about to come up. Hassan and his wife and his son are both, you know, praying uh, yeah. at the at the shoreline and they both die. But it's a dignified death because, you mm-hmm. know, and then you see Bev Keen, who's 50 yards down the beach from them. She looks over. And she, at first you think like she's going to hold it together as the sun starts to come up. And what does she do? She starts digging a hole <laughs> to hide from the sun and because she's so scared. She has, she dies with no dignity. Right. And no faith. And no faith. Because I mean, if you, she's a true believer, wouldn't she think, okay, well, I'm going to go to heaven. So it's fine. Nope. She was afraid. She was afraid to die. Mm-hmm. And she, and because of that, she died without, without dignity, but on the one hand, I'm like mad that they, you know, did this. And on the other hand, I just love, I love it because they show us the angel flying away clumsily because of what mm-hmm. Aaron did to its wings. But I'm just like, so did it die? Like, was all that ash falling from the sky from Crockett or was it from the creature burning up? I, I don't know. I think at the point of um, Lisa losing the feeling of her legs is to show yeah. that the angel died because, you know, the original vampire died. So, yeah. Like, my yeah. wife was just like, what happened to the, those two kids afterwards? <laughs> like, I don't, 
Yeah. I mean, <laughs> so what are they going to island that's just completely on fire? If anything's cut, like, yeah. how do you communicate? I mean, I assume they would eventually send somebody out there to check because there's yeah. no communication to it, but like, is there any food left? They burned everything. <laughs> what are they going to do? I mean, Maybe I, I think too, much, too, much, uh, too deeply about this problem. <laughs> yeah. No, but I thought that too. I was like, <laughs> my God, like, what's going to happen to them? But um, the other thing that I really, really loved about this show was, and like uh, a couple of, of Mike Flanagan's limited series, I think especially with Bly Manor, um, it was a very, it was a slow burn. Mm-hmm. Um, Bly Manor for me to the point where, you know, by the time it got to the last episode, I was like, all right, when is it going to start to ramp up a little bit? And I feel like Midnight Mass is better about that because starting in like episode five, I would say, is really when things start to like pick up pace and like you know things are happening and, and whatnot um but there was still time for even in midnight mass there was still time for like a lot of really good conversations between characters mm-hmm. and just really like the conversation between riley and aaron about what happens to them after they die like what they both were saying but riley especially because like you know i'm not a i'm not a religious person like i i yeah i'm, I'm not a religious person um and it does you know at times make you feel a little like well what is after we die I mean that can't be it can't be anything you know and it's a it's a scary thing to think about at times but Riley's like kind of explanation or view you know his perspective it it just it was so beautiful to me and it just I I'm not gonna lie I cried watching Mm -hmm. watching that episode and that discussion and and then at the end when Aaron is like I love how they kind of they flash back to that and they you know that's like what she's thinking about as she's dying and everything but like it's just it's so beautifully so beautifully said and then you see everybody on the island even the people who don't you know you see Ed and Annie you know even the people who don't have anybody they're all you know hugging it out and singing a hymn and and waiting for the end and nobody's afraid and it just it was beautiful honestly it was as beautiful an ending as you could expect for a horror based <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. one thing I thought was interesting you're talking about Erin the way she described what she thought it would be like after we die to what she was experiencing or you know felt she was experiencing what she actually did in contrast to what Riley said and what he experienced because you know she goes into that kind of like, you know, we are the cosmos, you know, that kind of thing. We're just a part of everything. And when Riley dies, he sees Tara Beth, who, I mean, if you're a believer in something like heaven or hell, you would assume someone like that would go to heaven. She just, you know, life cut unjustly short by the actions of somebody else. And um, so he sees her in the boat and she reaches a hand out and he's got this beautiful sunrise. So like, okay, is this heaven or is this just like, you know, his last uh, rush of what, are, what is it, DMT or whatever the chemical yeah. is that causes dreams? Is it, was, it, was it bad or is he actually in heaven? Like, I, I love that Mike Flanagan kind of lays it up to your imagination so you can think, you know, think what you want about yeah. what he's trying to say there. So, yeah. I just think it's, it's interesting that like what they said they envisioned and what actually happened to them has kind of reversed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But even, you know, even Aaron, what she was going through, you know, as as she was dying. um, And I don't know, I don't think it like wraps it all up too neatly or anything. But she said, you know, everything, you know, that we experience, we are everything that is Mm -hmm. God. 
And mm-hmm. then on the one hand, I'm like, oh, was that corny? And then I like watched the media <laughs> and I was like, no, that wasn't corny, but it could have been. It yeah. could be, yeah, but I mean, the way they write it, and of course, the acting is just so incredible that, yeah, I think it, Michael Flanagan has a way of just <clears throat> writing beautiful dialogue and monologues and yeah. um, just really getting you to feel all the feels, <laughs> even when something as awful as that is happening. Yeah, yeah, and that's, that is truly a skill, I think, that Mike Flanagan has, like, he just finds a way to you know, he's not lecturing anybody, he's not lecturing the viewer, but he's really like kind of gently prodding at very important questions, sometimes blatantly so, and sometimes more subtly, but you know, he's, he is, he's like prodding us in all those emotional places that could be sore spots and like getting you to feel things. And it's different for everyone. You know, everybody feels the experiences in a, a different way, but it's just the fact that he does that when he's also scaring the bejesus out of us. I mean, it's truly, you know, it's, it's true talent. And that's just why I love it up so much. Yeah. Yeah. And one other thing I wanted to just kind of briefly talk about is um, Mildred and Sarah and Montaigne Pruitt and their whole dynamic. Uh, I forgot forgot a couple (laughs) When you said the collar off at the end, I was like, Mm -hmm. I would have called you father, but okay. (laughs) No, just, I mean, something I found really interesting about all of that is, so you have this priest obviously breaking his vows to be with this woman. um, I mean, in a couple of different ways, because one, he's not supposed to be having relations with anyone. And also he's committing adultery with this woman. She was married. And um, I just, I like that one of the things that prompts her disbelief and what she and Sarah and Aaron all like to do later is because she goes to see him in church and it's like, this is not the man I know. Like, this isn't him. And to me, it's like, she sees this false um, belief this twisting of the meaning of scripture, which leads me to believe that he really was a very spiritual person that did believe what he was talking about when he was younger, even though he was breaking these vows, which I think is interesting in terms of, you know, religion versus spirituality. Like you have all these rules and regulations that you're supposed to follow, but is that really what's most important? And I don't necessarily think that it is. Um, and I think, you know, the fact that he did break those vows back then kind of leads to the saving of the town later on because, you know, it promised Mildred to be like, no, this is not who I know. This is not the man that he's supposed to be. Um, so I, I just found that kind of an interesting little tidbit. And it's also very sad and tragic because he has this family that he can't be with. Um, and you know, his daughter never even knew until the very end when it's too late. And um, and also just very sad, like he tries to save Sarah by getting her to drink and she refuses it. <clears throat> so it's kind of like that final rejection of him in many different ways. But um, I, did, I did see it was, see it as pretty beautiful. Like the, at least the three of them get to be together in death. Yeah. Which yeah. is you know, sad, but I mean, sometimes that's all you get. Which... Yeah. Well, and Mildred kind of, you know, she says it best when she says, you know, he's talking about getting, he said, I did this because I didn't want you to die. I didn't want Sarah to die. Mm-hmm. You know, I wanted us to have a second chance. And she's like, but 
that's what's supposed to happen. Not the second chance part. Yeah. The part that's supposed to happen is like, you know, you live your life and you grow older and you fade away. And like, that's mm-hmm. what is supposed to happen. And like, I'm really glad that they didn't do try and pull some kind of last minute, like Sarah's going to survive and they're going to find a basement to live in. Right. <laughs> everything's yeah. going to be, you know, yeah. a happy ending, so to speak, because like, it's not really, I mean, there it's, it is tragic because the three of them, their story was not a happy ending, but mm. like you said, that's just, I mean, it's, it's life. And when Mildred said that though, I was just kind of like, whoo, because I, on a personal note, like I'm a person who used to spend a lot of time thinking far too much about the past and thinking about mistakes that I had made and like not nearly enough time uh, focusing on, you know, present, future, whatever. It's something I've trying to been change, trying to change about myself. But, mm-hmm. you know, when she said, you know, it's not, I had to shift my focus from like, God, I wish I would have changed X about my life or Y or whatever, you know those parts of my life were meant to happen and I was meant to move on from them. And I did. And, you know, I 100% agree. You know, know, definitely, definitely are things like second chances, but not in the way of going back and rewriting the past. No. Yeah. Yeah. That can do is is move forward. And, you know, I think that was spelled out pretty well with Riley um, because he didn't go back and change anything, but he, you know, was able to do good by realizing his role in this whole thing that, and, you know, unfortunately he didn't get to choose his role in it and it's kind of thrust upon him, but he did have the choice of, <clears throat> do I want to continue this awful charade of this fake cult religion that's twisting everything that religion is really supposed to be, or am I going to honor what it really means to live for other people and, and sacrifice myself so that others can survive? So, yeah. Just, I mean, a lot of good, yeah, absolutely. And, and a lot of good storytelling does this, but again, it's just something that Mike Flanagan is so good at, but you know, it just, it shows the end of this show or the story of the show just so clearly shows you like the absolute worst in people, but also the absolute best in people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's no, not everybody in your life is going to be one of those really good people. And maybe, you know, uh, or maybe you'll get lucky and you'll have some of those good people in your life. You know, it's just, I don't know. It's just, it is a really good hard look at very, the two, two ends of the spectrum and how they can both be true and why they're both necessary and why they both yeah. are painful. And I am like legit getting emotional right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and what I love about this and what also kind of makes me think of Stephen King is that even as awful as some of his stories are, there's always well, almost always, but usually this kernel of hope, like there's always you know, this optimism that good will prevail somehow in some small way. Um, Pet Cemetery is the one I'm thinking that definitely is not that way. <laughs> it's, you know, kind of a rare exception. Um, but I, you know, I just, I love the fact that despite how tragically it ends, there's hope in that Lisa and that's Riley's brother's name. <laughs> and there's hope that Lisa and Warren do survive and that they help prevent this spreading off of this island and they contain it and it doesn't ever have to infect anyone else. So yeah, well, and you know, I know I was saying earlier, like because I'm the type of person who I crave closure and things, which is not, you know, <laughs> not always a good thing. But, you know, I was like, oh, I want to know, like, does the angel live or die? You know, and I guess, you know, by 
them not showing us whether or not that happens is, you know, I mean, yes, Lisa and Wade are, we assume going to get off the island and they're not infected. So, you know, um, but we don't really know what happens to the angel. And so we kind of don't know, you know, there's no, I think maybe the, the lesson there is like, you know, by them not letting us know is it's just, there is a lot of uncertainty as to like, you know, whether or not you could ever get rid of something as powerful, but also divisive as belief systems. I'm not mm-hmm. going to say like, we need to stamp out. I'm not saying we need to stamp out religion, but it's just like those, those systems of, of belief. I mean, they've been around for so many thousands of years and, you know, it's just perhaps the fact that we don't know if the angel lives or dies, like maybe there is still, you know, some of that infection, the chance, a small chance mm-hmm. that that's still going to go out in the world. Oh, and that is, yeah, who knows if there's, if there's one, there may be more of those creatures yeah. somewhere. Who knows? That's, yeah. Um, but, you know, like I said, I think, you know, he leaves it a little ambiguous, but for if you want to have closure and want to believe that Lisa losing the feeling in her legs is an indication that the angel is dead, I think yeah. that's, you know, a good assumption to make. Um, but yeah, you, you never really 100% know for sure. Um, and that's that's just life. You never, you can, all you can do is do your best. Yeah. That's, and isn't that what Riley says? I did my best. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. I, I think, um, well, I mean, like I said earlier, you know, it's the, the most beautiful ending to any horror related series or movie I've, I've probably mm-hmm. ever watched. And I think this is what we were just talking about is exactly why it's just, I don't know, it, it's just a, a very well told yes. story. And, and I love the fact that their last hymn that they sing, Near My God Today, is what they played on the Titanic. <laughs> is it? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, oh. it is. <laughs> oh, I love all those little so, things. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a horribly tragic event, but there were survivors. There are survivors yeah. here, and life goes on. Yeah. Life indeed does go on. Mm-hmm. So, but um, yeah, I, I mean, overall, as far as like on a scale of uh, how many Flanagans I give this, uh, this for me gets three Flanagans on a scale of one to five. This gets three Flanagans, I think, maybe three and a half. Yeah, I, I would say no, I'm, I'm going gonna, gonna to go four. I'm going to give, yeah, I'm going to give it four. Yeah. I think it goes, Hill House has five Flanagans. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Four, five Pennywises. I don't know. No, it was, it was fantastic. And listeners, I absolutely urge you to watch it. It's seven episodes. I mean, they're an hour yeah. long each, but roughly, um, but it's just, it's totally worth it. Yeah. And oh, if you're man. a fan of Flanagan or King type stuff, I mean, you'll just, you'll love it. Mm-hmm. And definitely watch it again. Like I still want to go watch six and seven because um, yeah. you get so much more out of it. They're just all these little foreshadowing things yeah. and you know hints that you don't necessarily notice and it just it's such a much richer experience once you know how it plays out so yeah definitely uh, that's another thing I love about him he leaves all of this in there so there's these little details you pick up on that you may not oh, yeah. necessarily see the first time so yeah give it a rewatch if you if you're hopefully have already seen it <laughs> so, yes but if not definitely watch it for the first Halloween fair <laughs> it is it really is I mean sometimes like at this point we're only you know we're less than a week away from Halloween and I've like stuffed myself on like all my favorite gory movies and all my yes. you know zombie nonsense and now I'm just like okay I need something that's still scary but also like you know gives me hope <laughs> yes so sure. and that's what this is honestly mm-hmm. so yeah, yeah.
listeners for joining us for this episode of Needful King. You can find the podcast on Podbean, SoundCloud, as well as Apple, Google, Spotify, and Amazon Podcasts. And please take a minute to give us a rate and review on the platform of your choice. You never know, we may read yours on the podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Needful King for news and updates. And we'd also like to credit Ryan Creep for the use of his wonderfully airy original composition for our intro and outro music. You can find him on YouTube at Ryan Creep. We hope you enjoyed this episode, Constant Listeners, and be sure to come back next time.